So I farm so hard, the employees wanna find me And then wanna hire me What's 100k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy Working late nights, you best believe me My grades can only go ace Never wanna see another B unless I'm Jay-Z Farm so hard, let's get paid Welcome to the first episode of Farm So Hard. Today, I'm your host, Jim Pruitt, and I'm joined by one of the smartest and the coolest people on Twitter. Go ahead and introduce yourself. What's up, nephew, JP? This is BG Brian Gilbert. I'm an emergency medicine pharmacist. Uh, just happy to be here, man. Glad that you're, uh, you're doing this. I'm uh, seeing big things coming out from you. And I'm just trying to be like you, a boss dripping a whole lot of sauce. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I like it. You know what I mean? It's around here, especially in the ED game, you got to get in where you fit in. You know what I mean? So we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. The topic for today is anticoagulant reversal, particularly looking at factor 10A inhibitors in the reversal with prothrombin complex concentrate, or as most of us in the United States know it, K-Centra. And I couldn't think of anyone else to bring on the show other than Brian Gilbert. <laughs> You're a kind man. There's a lot of people out there, but I appreciate it, buddy. There's been a huge trend now to start using these NOACs, DOACs, SHOACs, or whatever you want to call them, with an increase in the prescriptions for Xarelto and Eloquist. So, Brian, tell us what does the evidence say in regard to warfarin compared to these new novel agents in regard to bleeding rates? Yeah, so uh, like you said, there are more trends now to, to utilize these agents just for the convenience factor. A little pet peeve of mine, if you I actually think there's probably some indication creep going on with these agents. You know, a lot of the, the folks that we're starting to utilize these agents in now weren't actually studied in large randomized control trials that got them approved initially. And mm. so I think that you're starting to see their utilization overcome warfarin, and a lot of that has to do with the, the patient populations that they're, they're utilized in that they actually weren't studied. But, you know, the like you were saying or alluding to is that the bleed rates are, are a little, per, little more uh, favorable when it comes to the DOACs compared to warfarin, specifically with, you know, apixaban actually being superior to, to uh, warfarin. And so I think there's a lot of folks out there that, especially in the ambulatory care setting, that just are more comfortable utilizing uh, the DOACs. You know, obviously, warfarin is never going away. There's still going to be a patient population that's always going to utilize it, or you're just going to have failures in the DOAC population that you're going to need warfarin. But, you know, with the new AFib guidelines recommending DOACs over warfarin, the indication creep, I think you're going to start to see warfarin just become obsolete uh, in a, a large way. And like you said, man, it ends up being kind of scary. And so, you know, at least initially with these these DOACs, these spontaneous bleeds are, are more favorable with the DOACs as opposed to warfarin. But, you know, being in the ED, you know, we always get those patients that come in in a trauma situation or some sort of situation that we're not accounted for with these these bleeds. And so it can be really tricky when you're trying to, you know, manage these patients overall. Absolutely. One of the things I was able to see is that we don't have these monitoring parameters for these new agents like we did with warfarin. However, I did hear that you've been working on some things to help 
determine if a patient is actually taking one of these new novel anticoagulants using things like Rotom and TAG. So Brian, help us understand a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you alluded it to, you know, we, we don't have our INR like we do with warfarin. And if anybody out there has ever worked with a surgeon, neurosurgeon, trauma surgeon, they love numbers. They love, they love to see that INR get reversed. And unfortunately, we just don't have anything that's validated at this point with the the factor 10A inhibitors. You know, with Pradaxa, we've got the thrombin time, which is pretty good. But like you said, it's kind of fallen out of favor. So as soon as we figured out everything with Pradaxa, boom, we're not even using it anymore. So now we're trying to, at least my group's trying to focus in on these 10A inhibitors and try to, you know, one, identify who should be reversed. You know, we don't have that INR, like you said. And then after that, we don't have that INR in terms of uh, reversal and success. So we're looking at all the different things that may potentially be utilized within, you know, the entire scope of ED critical care setting, whether it be at a community hospital, whether it be at an academic medical center and whatnot. And so our group has been really focused in on utilizing uh, thromboelastography uh, or, or TAG. We have it at our shop. And then, you know, we've also been trying to identify and utilize whether or not we can use low molecular weight heparin anti-10A assays. Mm. You know, mechanistically, it makes sense that there's going to be some activity with the, the factor 10A inhibitors on that uh, or should be able to be identified with those uh, low molecular weight uh, 10A assays. The problem is, is that they're not calibrated for, you know, the, the factor 10A inhibitor. So we have to come up with the appropriate fudge factors, which there's been a little bit of data out there on that, but nothing uh, in the setting of, you know, trauma or acute critical illness. So we're still trying to figure that out. Yeah. You know, the most reliable, I think right now that we probably have is, is TEG or, or any sort of visioelastography, whether it be Rotem or TEG. And so here at our shop, we have rapid tag. And so when it comes to deciding whether or not to reverse or assessing the, the efficacy of whatever we do to reverse, which we tend to utilize the, the R time and the acute clotting time in terms of identifying those who should be reversed and then the efficacy. So we're looking into it right now in terms of, of the best practices for that. Uh, we actually have a case report coming out in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine coming out pretty soon. And then uh, we have a, a couple other articles that we're working on and trying to gather some uh, some data on that. But, yeah, right now it's it's tough out there. And that brings up a, a key thing, because in my shop, when these patients come in, some of the trauma people or ED said, hey, Jimmy, what lab are we missing? Is there anything else we can do to see if this patient was taking an anticoagulant? And to be honest, I really don't have a great answer for them. So how long has it taken for you to get these anti-TNA results back? Yes. Yeah, so we ha- it's a roughly about a 45-minute about turnaround time. And so the problem is, is that if you've got a patient that's clinically deteriorating, it's tough to get that data back. So my, my initial thought is just to go ahead and give the reversal agent or, or you know, and, and don't wait on the lab. You have to just assume that there's a coagulopathy. If it's something not as critical, like if you have a GI bleed that's maybe stable and you're, you're trying to assess, you could probably go ahead and uh, wait on that at that point. But again, if they're hemodynamically unstable and you want to go ahead and, and reverse, no one's going to fault you on that. So it's just real tough, you know. And, and then on top of that, if you get one that's sort of in the middle, 
you know, what, how do you even interpret that, you know, just because we don't have the appropriate fudge factors. Now, if it's a slam dunk, it's real easy. You just go ahead and say, yeah, let's go ahead and uh, reverse on that. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult in terms of identifying it. The other thing to consider is a lot of times these patients are on, you know, concomitant antiplatelets as well. So mm-hmm. a lot of times you don't even know if the bleed is associated with the factor 10A inhibitor or if it's an antiplatelet bleed, you know. So yep. it's, that's why I'm an advocate for TEG. You run that thing and you can try to identify where in the clot process this is, uh, there's a breakdown. Perfect. So we kind of talked a little bit about monitoring. Uh, we, we won't get into some of the newer agents, but what, what are you using at your shop to reverse these uh, patients that are bleeding on DOAX? So we currently utilize uh, prothrombin complex concentrate or four-factor PCC as well, so K-Centra. I say currently because that may eventually change just due to some of the you know, data that may come out later on. But we felt pretty comfortable with the effectiveness data and the safety data that was out there. And I guess the, the, the true, you know, nature and mechanism of PCC when it comes to factor 10A inhibitor bleeds, I, I, we say reversal, but I'm not even sure that the nomenclature should be reversal because mm-hmm. we're not actually reversing the, the effects of the 10A inhibitor itself. We're just trying to correct the coagulopathy done by the factor 10A inhibitor. That's you know, when point. we talk about these things and, and we say like toxicity, it, it's not in a normal situation. This is not like a normal toxicity situation where you have super therapeutic levels of a drug. Patients can bleed on, no, you know, normal concentrations of these drugs. And so, really, it's about trying to correct that coagulopathy. And doing so, you're hoping that by that time, the favorable kinetics of the factor 10A inhibitors have subsided. But, you know, there's a lot of argument on Twitter about, oh, PCC doesn't actually reverse the drug, and I don't argue about that at all. Like, mechanistically, no, but you are reversing a coagulopathy that's developing. You're really just trying to promote clot formation. Hey, Brian, can you quickly just go through what's in PCC? Yeah, yeah. So, so three-factor PCC has uh, factors uh, 2, 9, and 10, and then factor 4 ha- or four-factor PCC has Factor seven that's included, and then whether or not it's activated has uh, is based off factor seven. Uh, so, our main products that we use for activated four our four factor PCC is uh, FIBA. So, there's been a little bit of data with FIBA uh, and factor 10A inhibitor reversal. There's a I wouldn't say there's a robust amount of data, but there's the most data associated with four factor PCC. And I'm not actually sure there is any three-factor PCC data. I'd have to look into that a a little bit closer. But I think for the most part, most institutions have four-factor PCC, whether it be FIBA or Case Centra on formulary, just due to the facts that it is superior or they utilize it for warfarin reversal and it's superior to INR reversal uh, than three-factor PCC. So, Brian, there's a lot of information about fixed dosing and the traditional dosing. Can you give a comment on what you're using and what most people should be using? Yeah, so if you actually look at the, the it's, that's also kind of controversial as well, is that PCC dosing altogether is controversial in that the original dose-finding studies for four-factor PCC K-Centra was not actually done by the drug company. From what I was told and what, I, what I've been told by the manufacturer is that a lot of these dose-finding studies are supposed to come out later in the year. We'll see if that happens. But... 
currently guidelines recommend uh, a 50 unit per kilo dosing from the neurocritical cares and SCCM guidelines. But all of that's pretty much based off of uh, warfarin reversal data, which was, again, sort of an arbitrary number that they came up with, uh, especially knowing that dose-finding studies weren't performed. And so just like with warfarin reversal, we've seen uh, decreased dosing regimens or, or fixed dose or low dose, whatever you want to call them, be effective for warfarin reversal. We're starting to see a trend towards these lower or fixed dose regimens for factor 10A inhibitor reversal also be effective. And so it's, it's interesting because you want to uh, ensure that you are achieving hemostasis, but you're also, again, we, we discussed that these agents are, pro, uh, are clot forming and clot promoting, and so you don't want to end up causing a thrombosis. And so I think that it's, it's a stewardship approach in that you want to give the most appropriate dose that is effective for hemostasis without causing adverse effects, which also goes back into monitoring. So if you monitor a patient, you decide you're going to go ahead and give them a dose, you give it to them, and then you check that efficacy. And if you still haven't achieved that efficacy, then maybe go ahead and give another dose at that point. So it seems as the dosing is going to be something that's going to be dependent on your particular hospital and the guideline. But another question that I have is where to compound these medications, because there are certain places that do it at the bedside with our ED pharmacists, and there's other places that send it from Central Pharmacy. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is also very difficult because what you don't want to do is, one, these medications are expensive, so you don't want to just give them erroneously. They also have adverse effects. So, again, so not you, erroneous administration is a, definitely a downside. However, you don't want to delay care by, um, you know, taking too long in, into making the, the medication. So I think that currently at my institution we have our, our PCC come from the main pharmacy, and so we have a, a pretty good turnaround time. Our, I think our average is about 30 to 45 minutes from order to oh, wow. administration to the patient. So we're pretty fast. We get on it pretty, pretty quickly. Whereas, you know, some of these other studies and other institutions, sometimes it can be a, up to a couple hours. But I think it really just goes back to if you have pharmacy available to double check the, the dosing on it, you know, these dosings are a little bit tricky just due to the fact that you do have four factors within the the medication itself and the, the and the dosing is based based off of factor nine, and so it sets itself up for a lot of errors error potential, you know. So I don't think there's a great answer. I really just think it should be institution specific, and so you know the the next is whether or not you should you know the max rate of the drug. <clears throat> the other is considering whether or not you need to put it into a syringe or put it into a bag and run a piggyback. So the real question is whether or not you should put it into an IV piggyback versus uh, into a syringe for an IV push. And so it's really, as long as you have a good uh, solid nursing staff and a good solid pharmacy staff that's able to mitigate some of the errors that are potentially there, I don't have a problem with it being uh, compounded at the bedside, but you know, a lot of institutions are just not at that, that place where they can do that yet. So where to compound the medication is going to be an interesting topic, but I think that's going to be Wherever you do it, it seems to be, as long as the patient can get it in a reasonable amount of time, it'd be fine. But let's just switch gears and talk about the elephant in the room, the dollars, the ka-ching. Like, these medications are expensive, and we're talking about anywhere from, you know, $5,000, five to $6,000 with case central, depending on your doses, 
and you know, in upwards of $7,500 for FIBA. And when we talk about the other drug, depending on how you're getting reimbursed and how the people from that particular company smooth talk you, uh, anywhere from thirty to $60,000 for a dose of this medication. All of that just to say that it's an expensive conversation to have. But when putting costs aside, I think one of the things that is also interesting is where the guidelines stand on this particular issue on which agent to use when reversing these agents. And the guidelines seem to be all over the place depending on which studies they use to back their recommendations. So, Brian, just give us your thoughts on the recommendations that are put forth by the guidelines. So, uh, you know, you said it, you nailed it on the head, is that a lot of these are all over the place and a lot of them don't really indicate where they got their recommendations from. A lot of these recommendations are based off of expert opinion and not necessarily high quality data. So, you know, it's important to know for anybody listening to this is that if you're quoting to me that the guidelines are recommending a certain agent or over the other for factor 10A inhibitor, I already know that for the most part, this is going to be low quality evidence. And so, you know, the, the other agent, as you as you call it, and it's going to be funny because if they start sponsoring your show and I start seeing little sticker tags, <laughs> with them, I'm going to come back on and we'll have another debate and talk. But they're, they're all over the place and a, a lot of them are, I think they're recommending the, the other agent just due to the fact that it, it is FDA approved. And not to say that it, it and, and honestly, if the, the other agent, as you call it, was, was the same cost as the PCC, I'm not sure that we're still having this discussion or this Absolutely. podcast. But, you know, it is all over the place just due to the fact that there isn't a lot of high quality data out there. There's not a lot of good comparator data as well. The, the other Absolutely. thing is that we don't even know if any of these agents work or if it even exactly. matters. So it's tough to have somebody come in with a subdural hematoma uh, on a factor 10A inhibitor and you're not going to go reverse it. It's tough to think that anything that you can do is not going to work, but it could very well be the fact that uh, that happens. You know, the other issue that comes up all the time is whether or not, you know, we're reversing and we're even causing uh, hemostasis to occur. I know specifically with like head bleeds and things like that in terms of dosing, some people will shoot for higher recommended dosing, but at least with PCC, I still think you're okay doing the lower dose just because you can always give a little bit more. That just really goes back into having a firm understanding of, hey, no one has a great idea of how to dose these things, how to monitor these things. And the the gut reaction is to just give the max dose for everything. But yeah. um, I think in this situation, you have to remember these patients were on the factor 10A inhibitor because they were prothrombotic. So shifting them to a prothrombotic state by giving them a max dose of a clot forming agent is also probably not the right answer as well. Absolutely, Brian. I think going back and looking at some of these studies, there are a few key things that seems to resonate throughout all of them. Uh, one being the hemostasis rate, another being thrombosis, and mortality is also a huge thing that's going to be compared when looking at the other drug and when looking at four-factor PCC. So, Brian, with a host of information out there before 2019, can you just give an overall summary of the data prior to 2019? 
Well, it was great because we didn't have the other agent on the market. We just really were utilizing PCC because that's what we, you know, we we had available and we thought would work best at that point. The other consideration was that a lot of these patients, you know, were we we knew the patient population that they were utilizing them in. Whereas now, there's this indication creep we talked about before, and so I think that the the evidence prior to 2019 was less controversial because. We were doing the best we can, but also, too, the, the, the number of people on these agents was not as, you know, as high as it is now. You know, obviously, it was trending up, and it didn't seem to be at the forefront of an issue uh, until the, till the reversal agent that will go unnamed. But for the most part, you know, people were utilizing four-factor PCC, the neurocritical care guidelines and Society of Critical Care Medicine. All of those were recommending 50 units per kilo and just bolusing as they could with no real recommendations on monitoring, no real recommendations on how to identify a patient that has a factor 10A inhibitor coagulopathy. And so I think once the other drug got approved, now all of a sudden you've got a drug that could break, uh, to, that could break the bank of a pharmacy, and now you've got a lot of people interested in it because... One, is it the appropriate therapy? And then two, hey, we this is not going away. This is an issue that, if anything, is just going to keep uh, escalating. And so we need to figure it out right now or at least have a good idea of, of what we're doing. So we're looking at these newer studies that was published in 2019. The first one that seemed to get a lot of popularity was from Smith and colleagues out of MUSC. And what the authors aimed to do was to perform a comprehensive analysis of the safety and efficacy of four-factor PCC for the management of serious bleeding related to oral factor 10 inhibitors. The design was a retrospective observation study conducted at MUSC, and they looked at 31 patients that had a major bleeding associated with factor 10 inhibitors. So their intervention was to use four-factor PCC anywhere from 25 to 50 units per kilo of actual body weight with a max dose of 5,000 units, and they did not have a comparator. But overall, when looking at their baseline characteristics, some key things to point out was that their mean GCS was 15, the median door to case center time was 2.3 hours, and a majority of their patients actually received the 50 units per kilo dosing. When assessing their outcomes, they reported that most patients with 80.6% achieve hemostasis, and the mean dose that they actually used was 3,070 units, which roughly came out to $4,973. They reported zero thrombotic events. Their median ICU length of stay was 2.6 days, and the hospital length of stay was 7.2 days, and their in-hospital mortality was 16.1%. So overall, they concluded that in their small court study, the administration of four-factor PCC was effective for most patients requiring emergent reversal of anticoagulation with oral factor 10 inhibitors, and was associated with a low risk of thrombotic events. It definitely was a ton of buzz about the other drug when this study got released. So it was perfect timing. And I was pretty stoked when I read it. Brian, what was your thoughts when it got published? It's a great combat to the to other drug's data. Not to, and again, if the other drug had been, you know, 4,500, you know, five grand, even maybe 10 grand, we're not even having this discussion. But the fact that you can uh, take a stewardship approach and say, hey, I can have pretty much the same efficacy with a very high uh, safety profile here that, I mean, I've got 30 patients that are usually in a prothrombotic state. And now I've got zero, you know, zero having a thrombotic 
robotic event is, is major at that point. You know, the, the other key that always comes up, and you mentioned it a little bit, is the patient population that, that received the drug. And I, I know that's always a knock on, on the other drug, and I know it's a knock sometimes on the PCC drugs. Remember, especially in head injuries, there's a sweet spot in terms of where these agents would be efficacious as it is. You know, somebody coming in with the GCSO3 with a large subdural, probably not going to make a difference regardless of what we do. It's those patients mm-hmm. that are at the GCS of 7 to 8 to, to 9 to 10, somewhere around there where really could make a difference. And so those are the ones we don't have an answer for now. But if you can answer the not as acutely ill patients, then it makes you feel more comfortable in those real sick patients. And so I know Mel, Mel and uh, uh, her work at MUSC, I know they're doing a little bit more from what I remember Mm-hmm. Uh, she was able to give this at, uh, give a presentation on this at SCCM. So, fantastic job by by Mel Melanie and her group. Yeah. So this was a great study. At least this came out too right about the time that the the other drug was getting approved or getting getting talked about quite a bit. So it was perfect timing. Another study that was done that is commonly referenced in institutional anticoagulation reversal guidelines is the one done by Karen Berger. Brian, can you quickly summarize that study done by Karen? Yeah, so Karen's a, a, a great neurocritical care pharmacist up there. And so she actually showed in her study, basically, uh, same type of patient population, but all intracranial hemorrhage patients. And so they were assessing whether or not low-dose four-factor PCC would work for reversal of factor 10A inhibitors. And so they u- utilized the 25 units per kilo per their hospital reversal guideline. Again, no comparator group, but they had 68% of their patients were taking rivaroxaban, 22% were taking apixaban. Um, I think it's important to note, too, that when this data came out, it was right about the time, I think, that rivaroxaban had been on the market a little bit longer than apixaban. I think this study was 2014 to 2015 that they, mm-hmm. it was published in 2019, but actually performed in 2014, 2015, because some people have been talking about, you know, the rivaroxaban number versus apixaban number. Anyways, it probably doesn't make a difference there, but 50% were male, they were about 80 years old, and then they all got about a median dose of uh, 2,000 units of PCC. She had 95 or little less than 95% uh, achieve hemostasis and head bleeds, which is freaking amazing for any drug. So uh, absolutely great work. And so uh, there was 9.1 that developed a thrombotic event. So definitely more than the zero that Mel and them had, but still better uh, than the other guy or close to the other guy. And so they still had about 20% of their patients that passed away or had in-hospital mortality, which tells you the acuity level of their patients. So fairly, fairly high or pretty significant. And so overall, you know, having patients that, you know, head bleed being the probably the most feared you know, acute major bleed and, and utilizing not only PCC, but utilizing a low-dose dosing option on that and still getting high efficacy rates is just fantastic. So this is great uh, sort of data to, to fuel at least more uh, discussion on the utilization of PCC and low-dose PCC. And this actually sort of sparked a study that the Neurocritical Care Society is actually doing right now. We're calling it the FIX-ICH study, um, where we're evaluating 
the other guy versus PCC in head bleeds. So more to come on that. Hopefully the guys out of the the guys out of Rush are leading this study. So hopefully we can get some good data out to the to the world. Speaking of the group from Rush, they're basically a publishing machine. Every time I turn my head, they're posting about a new publication and something else. So just big ups to those guys out there at Rush and just continuing to contribute to the, the medical literature. So before we close out, can we talk about this last study by Dagger and colleagues? Yeah, absolutely. So Bill, Bill and colleagues out there were utilizing FIBA, which again, just quickly is, is four-factor PCC with activated uh, factor seven. So he had 64 patients that were re- receiving FIBA for potential bleeding during a high-risk procedure. Uh, this was a single-center retrospective analysis. And so they utilized a even lower dose, less than 20 units per kilo in one arm versus moderate dosing, which was like 25 units per kilo uh, option. And so no, no placebo group. They really just were comparing the two different dosing strategies. And so there was the mean age of the patients were 74 years old, uh, 80% were on anticoagulation for AFib, about 30% had ICH, and then 16% had GI bleeds. 25% were on dabigatran, 31% on apixaban, and 44% on ribaroxaban. Uh, and so when it came to additional doses and in terms of just efficacy overall for FIBA, patients uh, had a 90.6 or 91% uh, effectiveness for uh, achieving hemostasis. So again, we have another study here that shows PCC being effective for reversal of factor 10A inhibitors. And in the, and, and Bill's study, they had, in terms of thrombotic events, they had 8% that had a thrombotic event, which is still, you know, close to that, the other guy's number. And then 14% had uh, in-hospital mortality. So fairly sick population, not, not overly sick, but still, still a pretty good number. Uh, and so their conclusion was that 25, per, 25 units per kilo of FIBA or lower appeared to be safe and have the potential uh, to increase hemostasis in critical bleeding sites. So again, another, uh, another type of positive data coming from the PCC realm, especially for those that are like, hey, I have, I have FIBA on formulary and all this data is with Kcentra. These were all phenomenal studies, and it's definitely going to impact the way we practice moving forward with these, the ones that are being produced, and the ones that the phase four trial that's undergoing right now. But as we get ready to close out, Brian, give us some of your final thoughts. One is that, you know, monitoring and identification of patients that need to be reversed is crucial. The second is that no matter what data or whatever agent you use, you need to find a a marker to to tell you whether or not the reversal was effective effective or not. And so, uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of data on there right now. You know, continue, if you're listening to this, continue to look at that. Next is that I think PCC at this point should probably be your option when it comes to reversing these factor 10A inhibitors that may change once this trial that uh, you just alluded to came out. That's if they don't cop out and you know, don't use PCC, but that's a whole nother discussion. But, you know, I think for now that PCC is probably appropriate as long as you continually assess the data in a non-biased standard. So if this comes out and the other guy is actually superior, 
with a lower safety profile, then you know what, pharmacies and institutions are just going to have to buck up and and foot the bill on that. But I think that for right now, I and the other thought and the last closing thought for me is that we don't even know if these agents are even appropriate. So having no comparator group uh, or knowing whether or not these agents even make a difference is is also something to consider. But overall, PCC, I, I feel comfortable with it. I know you do as well. Probably, probably your best bet in these situations. That's great, Brian. I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners to tuning in for the first episode of Farm So Hard. Definitely check out the webpage to look at some of those show notes. And I will see you guys on the next episode of Farm So Hard. <music>